0: 2 Samuel chapter 11 I don't know if you remember that story It was a couple weeks ago As we look at it We get to see that David Made an absolute mess of things I'm not going to recap the entire story You're more than welcome to go back and read it Not right now, hopefully But later on when you're not doing something Um, But that story We watch as David makes a mess Poor decision after poor decision Bad choice after bad choice. Everything he did in that story was an absolute disaster. And as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read the first part of it. We see the second part of what happens in the story between David and Bathsheba. We get to find out what happens after David makes this mess. After he... Totally makes a blunder of everything that had been given to him and all of the decisions that he could make I read to you and we started in the very last bit of the last verse of chapter 11, which says this The Lord was displeased with what David had done Now for those of you who are concerned about That passage perhaps sounding a little soft, which our small group talked about a few weeks ago There's kind of a multitude of ways in which that could be translated Some of them sound a little more forceful But even this one carries with it great weight Because the idea of displeasing God Was a significant weight on David and on others So as we look into chapter 12 We ask those questions What does God do with God's displeasure? What does David do in response to the reality that God is displeased? How is it possible that some some sort of order could come back to the chaos in which David had created, in which everything had gone crazy? How does God redeem sin in David's life? In Chad's life? In your life? And as we think about what God does... What role is it that you and I play in God's grand work of redemption, of salvation, of restoration, of re-creation, of transformation? It's in Second Samuel, as we look at this part of the story, that we get some glimpses and some hints at what that looks like as we move into it, in order for us to find some resolution to what's going on in chapter 11, I think it's best that we zoom out of the story just a bit and remember some truths that we find are true over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. Some things that we're reminded of from the very beginning, from the very first story in the scriptures in Genesis chapter one, we are told that God has intention in creating us, that God has created us. To be partners with God. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 it says this. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. After this process of creation. After this work of creation. We're told that God gave women and men authority over the rest of creation. That we were given this opportunity to partner with God in ruling over God, all that God had created. And I think underneath all of that, we find that God created us because God desired to be in relationship with people. Friends, our existence brings pleasure to God. Our likeness to God, the ways we were created in the image of God, to look like God brings pleasure to God. I believe that God loves watching his children play and live life and do the works that we've been called to do. I believe that God is overjoyed at the opportunity to watch that. That God loves being with us. That God loves knowing us. The scriptures tell us that God created us to do and receive good as God's partners in creation and then in recreation as God works towards bringing everything back to perfection, back to the way in which it was intended from the very beginning. We have to hear this in order to grasp some of what's going on with David's story and all throughout the scriptures is the reality that God created humans. So that God could delight in us. This is God's default posture towards you and me. God begins at this place. God rests at this place. God stays at this place of being pleased with you and with me, with his creation. I think that too often we have this tendency to assume that God's default posture towards us, God's normal way of thinking towards us is a way of displeasure. That God is displeased in some way with what we've done. Whether it's because of our sin or the failures that we know exist in our life or our own low self-esteem that we wrestle with. Or the response that others have when they find or they see shortcomings in us. We assume God does the exact same thing. Constantly disappointed, constantly displeased, constantly struggling with who we are, with how we live our lives. But the scriptures tell us that God loves us. The Bible tells us that God is satisfied with us, that God takes pleasure in who we are. And that when our behavior, when the things that we do displeases God, as we saw it did here in the David story, we find that God rushes in to restore things. That God moves into the very center of the story in order to set things right once again, in order to bring life where we have brought death. There's a subtle but really powerful difference between two things that can be communicated as we read this story. I was thinking about Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, as I thought about this this week. But there's, there's, there's two very distinct things that we have to understand. Is that God in this story is not displeased with David. God is displeased with David's behavior. And although for many of us that difference may seem insignificant, it's huge with regards to how we understand our consistent relationship with God. Our understanding of God, our desire, our our God's desire to show us love and grace and mercy is that we have to understand that God loved David from beginning to end all throughout the story. And that the same is true of us, that in fact we see that God loves David so deeply, that God found so much pleasure in David, that God longed to make right what David had destroyed with his poor decisions. So God began in the story God's work of redemption. And he did so first by showing David the ways in which he would sinned. That story that Nathan came and told that we read. You remember what David's response to it was? The passage tells us he was furious. He was furious that someone would do such a thing. Furious that someone would behave in such a way. David was so intoxicated with his own power, with his own desires and his own wants, with his own idolatry, that he couldn't even recognize as Nathan told the story that Nathan was talking about David He couldn't even see any overlap between his own life and the story that was being told. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't recognize it. He was so convinced that he had the right to satisfy himself that it was impossible for David to distinguish between what it meant to please God and what it meant to please David. He couldn't distinguish between those two not always being the same thing. So David needed to see his failure. David needed Nathan to come and to point out the truth of what he'd done. To remind him of the many, many, many gifts that God had given him. And then to show him the multitude of ways in which he had misused those gifts. When you and I make a mess of the work that God is trying to do because we choose sin... We need God to come in and to show us our sin. Sometimes we know it. Sometimes we intentionally do those things. You know we have a two and a four year old. And it's easy to see the difference between when they do something wrong and they know it. And when they do something wrong and they don't exactly know the difference. There's this hiding that comes into place when they know they've done wrong. There's a completely different response when they don't realize that what they did was inappropriate. And sometimes we need God to come in and to point out to us the reality that we have chosen sin, whether or not we recognize it. And there's a multitude of ways in which we see throughout the scriptures and in our own life that God does so. Sometimes directly through the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes through this idea of conviction that comes over us that we can't necessarily identify or recognize or understand where it came from. We just know that we have chosen sin over God, that we have chosen our own way over God's way. Other times it comes to us through a a constant maintaining of sacred rhythms or spiritual disciplines. Through prayer or the reading of scripture, through silence or solitude or some type of spiritual retreat. Or some other form of spiritual discipline or sacred rhythm that we practice in order to keep us connected with God. And sometimes, like in David's story, it comes to other people. It comes to people who love Jesus and love us so deeply that they can help us recognize when we have drifted away from God's dreams for us. And if we are wise, we would invite these kind of people into our lives. If you and I are intentional about living a committed life of faith, a life that brings honor to God, a life in which our behaviors please God, then we invite into our life people whom we trust and people whom we love, and we give them the right The responsibility to speak truth to us, to help us recognize when it is that we've gone astray. Now often we talk about this idea of speaking the truth with love, which is a great concept and I love the idea of it. I just have to confess I'm really bad at it and I think that most of us are. When we begin to speak truth, we get tripped up on the idea of truth and we forget the idea that we're supposed to also love people. So I've begun to try and think about this in a different way. We need to invite some people into our life who will constantly speak love and will do so truthfully. But the motivation, the center, the starting point for all of that is love. The driving force, the motivator, the goal, the reason that they desire to keep us connected to God is not because they feel this responsibility to speak truth, but because they love Jesus and they love us. And they desire to see the two of us so connected, so aligned that they need to speak love to us and do so truthfully. After we see God beginning to work in this work of redemption by pointing out David's sin, we also see that David had responsibility in God's work of redemption. That David had things that David was supposed to do. So so what happens with David when the sin gets pointed out? Do you remember the story? This means yes. This means no. All those other things you're doing means I don't even know what you're talking about. Or you went to sleep, one or the other. Immediately, David confesses. Immediately, as soon as it's pointed out what he's done wrong, he confesses. He's broken by his behavior. He's broken by his failure. He's broken by the evil that he's committed. Broken by his sin. Broken by the idea that God was displeased with his behavior. And and as I have read this, I don't feel like this is David putting on some grand gesture because of the consequences that were coming his way. We've seen that happen in apologies. I don't think that this was some ploy for favor because now he's been caught and he knows what's going on. So he wants to make sure that he betters things. Now, I don't want to paint the picture that David did everything perfectly, but I do think that in this moment we watch as David confesses and that this is David's role in God's work of redemption. And I think this is our role in God's work of salvation. We confess the ways in which we've drifted away from what God dreams for our lives. It's disappointing to me that too often when we discover that we have wrongdoing in our lives, when someone confronts us about sins that we have or ways in which we've hurt others or ways that we've done things wrong, when we get found out, too often our response is to justify the behaviors. Is to justify the things that we've done or the ways in which we've acted. To say things like, it's okay that I said that about her. That's just what men do. This is normal. Or it's okay, we believe, for a woman to say, it doesn't matter that I took credit for that work that he did. I'm the boss. I can do whatever I want to do. We see people say things like, it's okay if I do that to her or to him. I'm in control. I get to decide what is right or what is wrong. And if we're not justifying our behavior, which I see way too frequently, then I feel like we see the, uh, the other, which is far worse, in that we deny it completely. We deny the idea that we've ever done anything wrong. I am sick and tired of seeing leaders who we look up to, who we have respect for. Who get found out, who get discovered that they've done something that they weren't supposed to, and that their immediate response is denial. We've seen it from church leaders, we've seen it from political leaders, we see it from friends and family, and if all of us are honest, we've probably done it ourselves way too many times. But when we justify our behaviors, trying to make it sound like it's okay for us to behave that way, or when we deny it altogether, when we know that what we've done is inappropriate, the goal in that and what we're striving to do is that we are striving to self-protect. We're striving to make sure that I'm covered, I'm okay, I'm protected. And if you remember 2 Samuel chapter 11, we talked about the reality that David worked to do that over and over and over again to protect himself rather than getting caught, to protect himself rather than... Confessing what he'd done in chapter 11. And yet, as Christ followers, as the church, as people of God, there's nowhere in Scripture that we can find that our primary goal in life should ever be to self protect, should ever be to cover our own tail, to cover our bases, to protect ourselves. I, and I want you to hear this morning. Something that I think we frequently mistake as we try and figure out what it means for us to follow Jesus. God never expected that you or I would live life perfectly. It was never the expectation of God that we would get it figured out and live life in a way that has absolutely no wrongdoing in it. So there's no reason for us to pretend that we do so. Which is really what we're doing when we justify our behavior or we deny our behavior. Or we try and cover it up. Is that we're pretending that we've lived perfectly. What God does expect of us is that God expects that when we fail, that when we sin, that when we do things that we're not supposed to do, that you and I would be the kind of people that stand and confess our sins. That you and I would be the kind of people that strive to get back towards God as quickly as possible. When we discover ways in which our behavior has displeased God, that you and I would immediately confess and immediately run back to God. That's the expectation that God has of us. It's not that we would get everything figured out so we could live life perfectly. As we've watched this trail of God's work of redeeming what's taken place, we see God and the pointing out of sin. We see David and David's work in God's redemption, and then the picture points back towards God. Our vision is to drift back towards God as we get, watch that God continues the work of redemption. As we see that grace gives us a chance at forgiveness, at reconciliation, at new life. Nathan gives this beautiful response to David's confession. In verse 13, it says, Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for your sin. Now, verse 13 includes David's confession and Nathan speaking on behalf of God, speaking forgiveness over David. There's not a breath between the two of them. There's not a beat that exists between confession and forgiveness. They happen directly connected immediately in response to one another. And yet I actually think that what we watch happen is that forgiveness is faster than immediate. I think that because of God's default posture towards us, because God from the very beginning finds in us pleasure, because God desires to show us grace from the very beginning, because God is always looking at us with love. I actually think that the forgiveness that Nathan spoke over David, the forgiveness of God actually came before David's confession was even spoken. That because of God's deep love for us, God shows us where we've gone astray. That because of God's deep love for us, that God receives our confession. And because of God's deep love for us. Before we ever even speak that confession That doesn't mean we don't need it That doesn't mean we don't do it But before we ever even speak that confession Because of God's deep love for us That God forgives our wrongdoing Church, there is incredible beauty In the redeeming work of God In the redeeming work that God desires to do, that God did in David's life and that God desires to do in our life. And yet before we jump too quickly or before we try and push things away, which I think often happens, we can't forget that with sin comes consequences. And that even though we are forgiven, that doesn't erase all of the consequences of the damage that we've done. When we sin, we bring pain On other people On ourselves Even on God And sometimes that pain Might be irreparable There might not be a way to fix it When we sin We do damage to God's dream For us and for others And for creation And sometimes that damage Can't be undone As we look at David's story, if we move beyond verse 15, the pieces that we didn't read, we find out that David suffered incredible consequences for the sins that he committed. The baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with died. David's household fell apart. His children began to turn on one another. They began to turn on him Because of this event, this experience, I I say event, this multitude of events that took place between David and Bathsheba, we find out that the kingdom never recovers. Because of David's poor choices, things are never again fixed or right in the kingdom of Israel. And this is why when we get recognition of our sin we recognize that God has forgiven us for sin. Because of our love for God and for others, this is what drives us to a place that we long to not sin. It isn't because we're pursuing perfection because somehow if we live perfectly, God loves us more. It's instead because we've been so overwhelmed by the work of God's grace. So overwhelmed by what God is doing. That we want to please God with our appropriate behaviors. It's because we've fallen so deeply in love with Jesus and with other people that we never want our sin, our poor choices, our drifting away from God to damage the dreams that God has for us or for others or for creation. So our pursuit of right living is not because somehow in perfection we please God. God is already pleased, it's because we want to make sure that our decisions don't do damage. We want to make sure that we live out of the overflow of the grace of God. This story is supposed to be a really painful story. This story of David and Bathsheba is supposed to, in some ways, make us ache. It's supposed to reveal things to us in the scriptures and in David and even in ourselves that we need to wrestle with. Some of us have been forced to do so in the last couple of weeks. I told you two weeks ago, and I'll say again today, I've wrestled with these stories in ways that I've never wrestled with them before. And at the end, I find myself thankful Thankful that the Bible lets us see the depths of David's sin. Because in seeing how sinful he was, I'm able to also see the tragedy of my own sins. No matter how great or how small they are. Because I can see David's sin, I can see the tragedy of my sin. I'm thankful that the scriptures let us see the beauty of David's confession Because it encourages me to live different than what is normal. To live different than what is expected. To live different from how so many people live life looking to self-protect, to justify, to deny. It instead encourages me to be someone who confesses when I've wronged God and when I've wronged others. I am thankful that the Bible lets us see the power of God's grace in this story. Because it gives me hope that God has also granted me grace. As we read this story and we look at the example of David, we have the opportunity to be reminded that God loves us. To be reminded that God redeems the terrible decisions that we make. That doesn't justify them or make them acceptable. But it does mean that God is bigger than even the sins in our life. God brings life to the death that our sin causes. And this story reminds us in such a beautiful way that God takes pleasure in us. So this morning, let me encourage you with this. As we've looked at David's story, this little piece of David and his interaction with Bathsheba, with Uriah, with God, with Nathan, and all that's taking place in this. As we look at David's story, I want to encourage you to take David's story and to lay David's story alongside your own life. For each of us to take David's story and to lay it alongside our life and our experience. And my hope is that through doing so, that you and I would find the courage to confess our failures. The ways in which our behaviors have displeased God. That we would find the courage to confess our sins to God and to others. But also that as we look at these two stories that, that we would be willing to receive the grace that only God can offer. That you and I would take on the new life that Jesus offers. That Jesus promises to those who are in pursuit of this idea of being after God's own heart. And as we do so, I hope that we can each land at the place that we can pray the prayer that David prayed. In Psalm 51... You're welcome to, to move there if you'd like, but it'll be on the screens too. But in Psalm 51, we find a prayer of David. We find what the scriptures tell us is, is David's response to Nathan's identifying the sin in David's life. So, so when God sends Nathan and Nathan finds what he does, the prayer that comes from David's mouth is Psalm 51. And I want to read this over you. My hope being that it can come to a place that it's not only David's prayer, but that it's my prayer, that it's your prayer, that it's our prayer to God. As we recognize the ways in which we have failed or run from God. So would you listen as I read David's prayer over you? And if you can connect with it, if you can make it yours, then perhaps you close your eyes and allow these words to come from me through you straight to the heart of God. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. And they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. Let me read to you again verse 16 and 17. It says this. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. May this be our prayer this morning. Pray with me. God, work the miracle of your redemption in us. May we become a people after God's own heart, not out of our own doing our own work, but because you... Have done a redeeming work in us. And we have partnered with you in it. Create in us. A clean heart. O God. And renew a loyal spirit. Within us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.